listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Ben Chisel, an Australian filmmaker whose work includes the crime thriller series Guri Haji, currently streaming on Netflix, and recently he's directed episodes of the Emmy-nominated The Great, produced for Hulu, based on the 18th century Russian Empress Catherine the Great. Ben, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thanks very much. Well, you've had a very busy couple of years with directing episodes on those productions that I mentioned. Your first feature happened back in 2015 called Sucker. Like many films, it can take a while for all of it to come together. How did that happen for you as a first-time feature film director, and how long did it take for that project to be realised? Sucker began life as a stand-up comedy show by Melbourne stand-up Lawrence Lung. He made a show called Sucker in Comedy Festival, I want to say 2001. And I saw it at the time as a, uh, I was doing, I did one year at the VCA as a post-grad film directing course. And I saw it while I was at that course and thought this would make a fantastic feature film. And I approached Lawrence and he said, yeah, you're not the first person to say that. He already had several kind of expressions of interest from actual filmmakers. Not to be disheartened, went home and wrote a pitch for what I thought the movie would be and how, how it would work. And I said in that pitch and thought no more of it until he ran me up and said, your pitch is spot on. That's exactly the kind of movie I think Saka should be. Let's do it. And it took us 12 years to finally raise some money and make the movie. That's a really interesting point. You mentioned writing a pitch. Even though at that time it was probably unlikely, it was a polite thanks, but no, I've already got other filmmakers interested, and you were able to turn that around with the pitch. And I think for our independent film directors that are listening to the podcast, if they've been in that situation, that's a very good point to take it a step further, because it's only your time to sit in front of the computer to write a pitch up. And if your pitch is in alignment with the the writer, it's a match. Yeah, and I feel like if it wasn't in alignment, it wouldn't have been a good collaboration. So a pitch not only makes it more likely that you might get a job, but it sort of clarifies whether you're in fact the right person for that job. If you've got a very strong feeling about something that you might direct and you write a pitch for it and the producers and the writers read it and think, oh, no, that's not our show at all, it's better to find that out early than, uh, you know, three weeks into pre-production. To, to jump ahead a bit, I got my job on Geary by writing a, a written pitch too. Like I, I, It's a technique that I have come to believe in. It hasn't always worked. There have been jobs that I've really wanted and I've written a pitch from and I haven't ended up getting. And, you know, some people will do mood boards. And I think that's totally useful too. But I'm, I'm quite good with a written word. So I generally, I just sit down and, and, you know, I write somewhere between three and five pages, sometimes a few photo references. But mostly it's, it's text about what I like about the scripts, the kind of show that I would make were it up to me, and then anything specific that I think is, you know, germane to that project particularly. And it's been a good strategy for me. It's, you know, I've ended up with some really great jobs and I think partly that pictures really helped me get those. You know, this is done in casting and I have struck it myself where somebody walks into the room, they will read the scene or maybe before they read the scene, they'll say, look, you know, I've got a different take on this. This is where I think the character could go. I want to do the the scene as it is written. Would you allow me to do another scene, which is kind of really what you're doing with these pictures? And yeah, in a couple of... Yeah, in a couple of different situations, I've hired those actors. 
I think that what a producer wants to see when they're looking at hiring someone is enthusiasm. They want to see someone that likes their material. They don't want to hire, you know, someone who's for whom it's just a job. You never want to hire a director for whom it's just a job. You want to hire a director who's going to be, give something of themselves to it because I mean, directing is an odd, you know, it's a sort of weird and mercurial job because in some ways it's hard to exactly pin down what the director does because it's very easy to say what everybody else does. And the director's sort of in between all those other roles, coordinating them and, and, and making sure that they are coherent. I think the producer is really excited to read a document that says, I love your show, I love your script, and here's why. Yeah, good point. Guri Haji is an interesting project, as mentioned, screening currently on Netflix. How did you end up directing episodes on the series? There's a British producer called Susie Liggett, and I had interviewed for Susie a couple of times previously on other jobs that she was a hired producer on, and she had tried twice to get me a job. Both times had sort of been frustrated because although I had met her and she liked me and I had pitched well for those shows, she couldn't quite ever talk the execs who I hadn't met into hiring me. Part of the barrier to entry on these kind of shows is that you don't get to actually meet the decision maker. So you'll go in and meet with the producer sure they can like you and you and they and they agree with the vision of the show but that just gets you onto a short list and then the executive looks at the short list of you know let's say six directors for two positions and they say well sure that guy might be fine but i've never heard of him and i've never heard of his work especially if it's a british producer looking at an australian director they're not going to go and watch episodes of my Australian shows. They don't know what the budgets were. They don't know the producers to ring them up. So that had been a real barrier to entry. But Susie is very stubborn and determined. And so when she was on Geary, she thought of me and she was able to walk straight into Jane's office and say, you should meet this guy. And I got on a, a Zoom with, actually, I don't think it was a Zoom, we pre-Zoom world, so it must have been whatever we were doing back then before Zoom existed, a Skype perhaps, with mm. Jane and Susie and Joe Barton, the writer, and Julian Farino, the other director who was also an executive producer. I got on a, a, a meeting with those four. Again, pitched my idea and followed it up with this written pitch and they liked me and they liked what I was, and they liked, you know, my ideas about Geary, I guess. And suddenly you had broken through the ceiling. These much bigger productions, you've got to get that initial breakthrough and it came. Yeah, it absolutely felt like the kind of cliched breakthrough moment. It really did. I was, we'd been living in the UK for eight or so years and I had not been able to get anything. I couldn't get a job directing anything over there. Even, you know, we tried, my agent and I had kind of got less and less ambitious with our approaches. So we'd given up. My wife Charlotte and I had given up and we come back to Australia and thought, I can get jobs in Australia. I really like working in Australia. It's some great TV being made. I was quite comfortable with that idea. And then literally Susie rang up out of nowhere and said, what are you doing? I need you for a year. Are you available? And I honestly thought, I'm not going to get this job, but sure, why wouldn't I try? When I had a moment, did my pitch and did the interviews with them on, on the Skype and, and then sort of, you know, obviously I didn't think no more of it, but I certainly didn't think I was going to get it. And then they rang up and said, we need you in the UK in four weeks. And it was go, go, go. Yeah, Geary was a quite astonishing job. I was on that job for three episodes of TV. I was employed full-time for more than a year. It was very, very well resourced and, and you know, they, the producers supported their creatives extremely generously. And not only that, it's a learning curve for you. Yeah, I went from working with a, a normal-sized Australian broadcast crew and broadcast budget to a normal size sort of international based in Britain one. And, and I mean, it's not entirely different. It's the same process and the job is the same, but certainly the scale was different. And much of the film is in Japanese. Tell me how that all worked for you as the director and working with Japanese actors. 
Yeah, I mean, that certainly was one of the challenges. The first thing to say is the Japanese cast were delightful, such nice actors, and I think it would have been so much harder if Tak and Yosuke and Aoi had not been such delightful people. Yosuke, for example, who plays the younger brother Yuto, is a megastar in Tokyo. We went there and he was on this fantastic, huge Givenchy billboard. He's Johnny Depp, basically, in, in Japan, and we would never have known that except that we went and saw it. So to meet him, he's just humble and uh, you know he's one of the hippest people i've ever met he came to the rap party wearing this ankle length buttermilk yellow overcoat with bits random bits of cloth sewn on the outside which you genuinely could not pull off unless you were beautiful and hip and sort of effortlessly cool but aoi who plays taki doesn't speak much english tak who speak plays um kenzo the lead he speaks very good english the process was quite complicated joe barton the writer had doesn't speak any japanese so he wrote all the dialogues in English. They were then translated professionally by some translators into Japanese. They were then checked by a second translator. But even then, when they came to set, often the Japanese actors would feel differently about a particular word or phrasing or there are lots of idioms. Like Joe's writing is very kind of, it's full of idioms and rhythm and, you know, he's very, it's very, very important to him and, and to the show itself, to the tone of the show that, that we, you know, preserve this kind of language. But it was incredibly hard to do across a, a divide into a different language because that the stuff doesn't translate often. So we had interpreters. We were always, whenever we were shooting a scene with Japanese dialogue, we had a native Japanese speaker on set with us. So the process of directing would be, I would rehearse the scene and then I would watch them do their scene in Japanese. It was actually surprising to me how much I could judge a performance, even though I didn't speak the language they were speaking. I mean, I had the translation in front of me, so I knew what they were saying. Genuinely, the, the way for me to sort of judge whether a performance had been authentic and, and truthful was to see whether the other actor who did speak Japanese was buying it. If they felt to each other they were playing as authentic and truthful, that was kind of my yardstick for the way that the fact that the performance itself was then authentic and truthful. I got better at it. I got better at listening to the cadence of the Japanese. And I did, by the end, was able to give performance notes even though they were speaking in Japanese, but I was always very careful about it. So I would always you know, ask, what part of that speech did you really emphasize the most? And if we didn't agree, then I'd say, well, I think this is a more important part. I think it's all leading to that line. And if you were going to do that in Japanese, how would it sound? Should we do a take like that? We had enough time in Giri 2 to do versions. So often if you know there wasn't, we weren't entirely sure about a translation, we would try two versions and then leave it so that we have both in post-production. And the problems and challenges of working in a different language don't stop with the shoot because the editors have to assemble the show without speaking Japanese, which was excruciatingly difficult because they've got to judge the performances they like without speaking the language again. And they often would pick a performance that they liked because of the intensity of it or the, or the particular kind of truthful feel of it that had a, a stumble in it or a, a word wrong. And then we had to... You know, there was a lot of kind of hand-wringing in post-production about, okay, well, this is the best performance, but actually what he says is this. Is that a deal-breaker? Is that not a deal-breaker? Can we keep this one because we like it better? An editor often cuts, but it's very hard to cut a speech if you don't know what each sentence is. If you're cutting English dialogue, you often cut superfluous words or if people are going, um, uh, uh, you cut that too. But again, it's very hard to do in a different language. So all of that compounded the, the challenges and the difficulties of the post-production process. And one of the last duties I had on Giri Haji was to sit in subtitle meetings. 
where we would go through every line of the subtitles and we would look at what the subtitle company had delivered as a translation of what the actor was saying, what our translators thought the actor was saying and what and then what the original line in the script would had you know was. And so the question was, could we live with the changes that generally the subtitle company were giving us a very literal reading. So they would say, no, it's not that line that Joe has written, that poetic line. What what the person Japanese is really saying is this. And we would go, well, that sounds terrible. That's a kind of clunky, you know, it's not a written line at all. Because Giri Haji has quite a written cadence to it. It's it's not a, the dialogue is not grittily realistic. It's sort of, it's elegant and elegiac and poetic. And, you know, we needed to maintain that, even though they were speaking in a different language. So then there were lots of questions about, well, does this original written line, is that a reasonable translation of what they're saying? That's a fair equivalency. Or is it too far a stretch, in which case do we have to rewrite it? And, and then Joe was rightly very protective of his dialogue. So there were some, in which he simply wouldn't budge. He said, no, no, that line has to be in because maybe it's echoed later on by another character and, you know, a whole scene is based on the, the fact that one character says a version of what another character has said earlier. And if, if we don't have that, then, you know, a, a whole thread of the drama is compromised. And whereabouts was the shot? It was about two-thirds in London, one-third in Tokyo. There was a little bit of um, country Japan too, so we were outside of Tokyo for a few weeks. And then there was some there was some stuff in Girihaji shot down on the south coast of the UK. There's, a, there's a, quite a, a beach sequence in episode six that was down at a place called Canberra Sands near Hastings. So, yeah, UK and Japan. And perhaps uh, give us a breakdown of the size of the production with crew that you were working with, just to give our indie directors listening an understanding of a show's scale behind the, the camera. So Geary was a step up from the Australian show I'd been working on. We shot most Geary with mostly with one camera, which is interesting because uh, all TV I'd shot up until then had been um, two cameras. I'd shot Sucker on one camera mostly. Julian, the lead director, had decided that he wanted to shoot one camera most of the time. He wanted it to have a very bespoke and authored kind of feel and didn't want it just to kind of be picking up shots in the way that two cameras often does. So we chose to shoot one camera. So the camera crew was smaller in that sense. But the, the electric department was bigger. Certainly there were five gaffers on pretty much all the time. But the unit were bigger. There were more standby wardrobe and more standby art department. The art department was certainly bigger. There's a role in the UK called on-set standby art director. So that the onset normally in Australia, you'd have one standby art department person to do prop, standby props and any kind of last minute change of dressings. But in the UK, we had a much bigger onset art department team. There's a props guy who doesn't touch anything else. And then there's a standby art director who's sort of in charge of the art department on the set. And then he had two assistant standby art directors. So there's four people um, fussing around doing art department stuff where in Australia that really would be one person. So that was definitely a change. And the art department in, in the production office was also much bigger. Graphics was just, there's one person whose job was just solely graphics and another person who was just a model builder and did set models and things like that. So that part of the production was, was a, a lot larger. And you've been directing on the new series, The Great, a story about a royal woman living in rural Russia during the 18th century who was forced to choose between her own personal happiness and the future of Russia when she marries an emperor. As mentioned, the series is produced for Hulu and stars Al Fanning and Nicholas Holt. How did you come by this? How, how was this given to you? That is written by Tony McNamara, who wrote The Favourite and also wrote Doctor Doctor. 
So I knew Tony and I was over in the UK having just finished Geary and he was coming over to do the great. And uh, him and the producer, Marion McGowan, took me out to lunch and talked to me about their show and asked me if it was something that I felt like I'd like to work on. And I absolutely was very keen. I hadn't done no period drama and that was very exciting to me. And, the whole, you know, I loved working with Tony and had already done two seasons of Doctor Doctor with him, so I knew him quite well. Uh, so that just sort of was I was in the right place at the right time. And the production designer, Francesca Mottola, has done a wonderful job creating the period uh, from what I've seen. I've yet to see the series. I saw the trailer and the huge amount of candles lighting and interior. How is lighting something like this period piece and working with your cinematographer to achieve all of that? Because it's obviously a, a completely different look to Giri. Yeah, so the, the great was shot by Australian cinematographer John Brawley. One of his guiding principles was that he wanted to shoot candles for real. Candles was a, a major consideration. There were two, you asked a question recently about size of crew. The crew on the grate was another step up again from Giri Haji. It was another whole order of magnitude larger. There was a, a full-time special effects department of which two people were employed full-time every day to simply manage the candles. That was their <laughs> entire job. Obviously, they're a continuity nightmare and, you know, the... The sets are big, but they would would get hot. You can't leave candles burning the whole time for reasons of continuity and safety and smoke and also because they're expensive. Literally, there were two people who, before you would do any take, would come around and light all the candles and after cut, we'd put them all out again. I had no idea that anything like this would happen. I mean, of course it does when you think about it. It makes perfect sense. But in terms of you talking about, you know, kind of what it was like to step onto a different size set or a different kind of set, that was certainly one of them. We had fireplaces too in all those rooms. They had real fires in them. Some of them gave us problems with smoke and that we, you know, we could only turn them on just as we we're about to roll the cameras and then had to turn them straight off again afterwards. But yeah, we saw a lot of those scenes are just lit by candles. And then John had a bunch of his lights outside the windows so that he could push sunlight through those windows, through the set windows. So and we hardly ever had electrical fixtures on the floor when we were shooting the grate. We basically lit through windows or lit with candles or fires. You mentioned how much of a step up this show was the great i wonder just how critical a good first ad was for you working on a show like this i had the same first actually on geary and the great first ad called joanna crow she's a british first who i met working on geary and i liked her so much that i asked her to come do the great i think it's an absolutely critical position the the scale of the crew on the great really blew my mind because it's an american show so its budget was you know one and a half times that of geary and when we went away to shoot that, I, I did a start one of my episodes as a an army camp, a Russian army camp on the the front of the war with Sweden, and essentially it was just a big muddy field full of people. But the scale of the away unit that we had to build to shoot that was astonishing. The numbers of trucks and the amount of metal flooring, and that you have to put down to kind of pull something like that off because period is. It's just much more labour intensive. So the numbers of standby wardrobe and makeup people in a period show just explodes. If I asked for 100 extras, that means probably another 30 standby makeup people. It's insane because they, they all have to get these people ready and they all have to be ready at the same time. And then, you know, the costuming for all those people is you can't just ask people to come dressed as they are and make a few adjustments so that you're adding another, you know, 30 standby wardrobe and makeup people just to kind of get 100 extras onto a set. And then you have to house all those people and it's Britain, so it's cold when they start at 4 o'clock in the morning. So you have to keep them all warm, you have to keep them all fed. And the logistics of that operation are mind-boggling. 
Well, the the costume designing was next level, and I imagine the final checks must have taken a hell of a lot longer as a result. Yeah, the whole process is slower because, yes, as you say, everyone's wearing quite extraordinary things and the design is so particular. Tony, who was showrunning that show, early on before I got to my episodes, they had been putting a lot of flowers in the palace and Tony particularly wanted a a lived-in kind of dirty, he didn't want a kind of beautiful period look. He wanted a very dirty real lived-in kind of look and so the kind of the order came down get all the flowers out and just put more shit everywhere and so we we got into a, a way of working where whenever we walked into a set we're about to shoot i would get the standby up art department to, to kind of do a, a shit pass where they would go away and just chuck shit around food knock over a few chairs throw some clothes on the floor just kind of break up the beautiful lines of those sets so that it felt like Yes, it's an amazing, beautiful palace, but it's also a bit of a frat house where this kind of young emperor lives and does whatever he wants and has parties and sleeps on couches. And so we wanted to have this kind of lived-in, horrible, mucky feel, and that was something that we kind of did every set before we shot anything. And the scale of the palace in the series, it seems to want to make that point of how big it is. How tricky or otherwise was that to execute shots and stage and capture the size of the palace? Well, John Brawley and I were very committed to being able to kind of move the actors around and, and having a kind of loose, reactive style of shooting. We, we wanted very much to get away from the grandiose um, sort of big shot feel of, of a lot of period drama. Like the, there's another Catherine the Great um, about the end of her life, which an HBO Catherine the Great miniseries, and it's very sort of self-important i guess is a slightly i mean there's probably a better word but it's very grand the sets are grand so the shots are grand and there are big tracks and big cranes and big kind of planned shots and john and i wanted the exact other approach so we shot a lot of handheld and we shot some stuff with three cameras john's um very savvy with little with black magic cameras he knows a lot about those cameras and he had a little black magic they would often pull out and add, we shot the, we shot the show on Aries, but he would have a little black magic that he would often pull out and use the third camera. And we really wanted to be able to use the scope of the space. So I blocked some of those scenes with with Elle. The, her bedroom set was a three room deal. It was three massive chambers all linked to each other along this corridor. And so I made sure that I blocked some scenes where she started in one and ran all the way up to the other and. You know, we tried to then plan shots which could ca- capture all that movement so that you could exactly what you suggested, feel how big the place was. So the exterior locations were filmed across the UK and Italy, with the Russian front being filmed in Kent, as you've already mentioned, while the main facade of the Winter Palace was filmed in Naples, where the cast spent two weeks filming on other sweeping landmarks like the Royal Palace of Caserta. It appears a lot of detail went into the locations. How impressive was all of that to you, stepping into a show where the attention to detail was there to feel and absorb as a filmmaker? In the pilot, which was shot before the sets were built, they shot exteriors in the UK and they shot interiors in various kind of grand houses. But by the time it got to the series itself, all the exteriors were shot at a place called Caserta in near Naples, a little, to be honest, it's a little mafia town. We didn't go there for the tourism, but it was a strange little place. But the palace, this Baroque palace there, um, yeah, we shot all the exteriors in the gardens of that palace and, and in and around the, the outside of that palace. 
it was a pretty amazing place to shoot, certainly. I had literally just finished Giri Haji, finished the very last of the post-production of Giri Haji, and was picked up at 4 o'clock in the morning, put onto a plane in London and flew flown to Italy, and, and then we got into a taxi and drove to this palace. And I, I sort of remember almost coming to standing on this balcony of this Baroque palace, looking out over these incredible gardens with 17 people looking at me, asking me questions about, was this the balcony I wanted to be on to throw the dog off? Because I, this is a scene in one of my episodes where Peter throws a dog off a balcony. And it was a, just a very dislocating experience going, what am I doing here? What the hell is going on? But it was an incredible place to shoot, an absolutely incredible place to shoot. I see that Giri has picked up some awards for the actors, including Will Sharp, who won a BAFTA for Best Supporting. How did you work with your actors on the show? Was there time for workshopping? Perhaps just talk through what you were able to achieve before you turned over the camera. That was a gift of a cast. They were all absolutely brilliant and they were all absolutely delightful to work with. You know, I felt sort of privileged to be working with such incredible people, incredible craftspeople and such skilled actors. You know, I tried to learn anything that I could do to create an environment on set for them to do their best work. So some actors like to do emotional scenes, if you know it's a particularly emotional scene, they like to do their close-ups first. And so I would try to learn things like that. Other actors like someone else to go first so they get a bit of time to to kind of work themselves into a performance. And so I think one of the jobs of a director is to know all the kinds of the ways to get the best work out of each particular actor and try to plan your um, shot making to give those actors the very best chance that they can. Obviously you run into problems if you've got two actors who both want to be first. There's a big long scene in episode five of Giri Haji where Kelly and Tack are doing a 10 minute dialogue sitting at a table in a cafe. It's actually, it's 12 minutes even on the page. I shot that with two cameras because I just thought they're not going to want to do this scene any more times than they have to and it's going to get stale very fast. So I wanted to give them both a chance to get their kind of fresh, alive performance on camera early. And so I ordered two cameras for that day. We, we, made, we made sure we chose a location we could light for two cameras and we shot that as a cross shoot and we shot the singles first and then we shot anything else that we needed after that once they'd kind of, you know, there were really only, I think maybe we did two takes of two sizes of the singles. So for four full runs of that scene to cover all that, you know, all that 10 minutes of screen time. Well, Ben, it's been interesting finding out about your filmmaking career to date. Good luck with everything that is following on from your recent successes. And thanks for coming on Shoot It Now. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.